very good morning, everyone. My name is Ollie Neal, and I'm the youth and young adults worker here at Crescent Church in Belfast. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this week's service. We live in a messed up world, don't we? Whether it's racism or persecution or the killing of the unborn or battles with mental health or the hurt caused by COVID-19. All these evils point to a fallen world, a world in desperate need of God's justice and renewal. And maybe you're listening to this and you're really hurting right now. Well, I think our first hymn points to the ultimate remedy to our pain. Let me read you the first verse. It says, Jesus, your name, Prince of Peace, quiets my soul, treasures the least. In perfect rest you will keep all whose hope is in you. Jesus, your name can silence the storms, the strivings that trouble our world. Jesus, your name reveals you as Lord, O oh, powerful name. Brothers and sisters, this morning, this is our hope. He is our hope. So let's sing these words like we believe they're true.
let's now turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning troubled by a world of pain and suffering, but with hope in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our living hope, the Prince of Peace, our wonderful Counselor. Lord, quiet our souls in the knowledge that his name can silence the storms and the strivings that trouble our world. Lord, convince our hearts of the truth that he cares, and therefore all our anxieties can be cast upon him. And thank you, Lord, that no matter where we find ourselves today, one day you will restore us and make us strong. Father, we long for the return of Christ. May it be soon, Lord. But in the meantime, help us to trust you. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to live out the lives you've called us to here in Northern Ireland. We do ask for your hand of blessing and healing upon those at present going through times of sickness, suffering and loss. Be near to them, Lord. May they know your kindness and love. Finally, Lord, we ask that all that is said and done in this service might be acceptable in your sight. We ask that by your spirit, you might use any truth spoken and apply it powerfully to the hearts and lives of those listening. We bring all this before you, Lord, in the powerful name of your precious and worthy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heather McGee will now read us the kids' story before Amy Cullen performs the actions for the song Store Up Good in Your Heart. The teeny weeny true king, Samuel anoints David, a Bible story from 1 Samuel chapter 16. God's people had a new land. Now they wanted a king. But God is your king, Samuel told them. He is the one who looks after you best. We want a real king, they said. One we can see. God knew that a king might not be kind to his people or look after them as well as he would. But God's people didn't care. They wanted a king and they wanted him now. So God gave them a king. He was called Saul, and he seemed like a good king at first, but he became proud and stopped listening to God. He didn't obey God or love God with his whole heart. Saul can't help me with my plan, God said. I need a king who loves me and will teach my people to love me. I need a true king. God had just the one in mind. Go to Bethlehem, God told Samuel. You'll find the new king there. Samuel's job was to listen to God and tell people what God said. So Samuel went to the little town of Bethlehem. God told Samuel to go to Jesse's house. God was going to choose one of Jesse's sons to be the new king. Jesse had seven strong sons. Now in those days, if you were going to be the king, you didn't have to be the richest or the cleverest, although that was always nice. You had to look like a king. That meant that you had to be the tallest and the strongest so you could carry the longest swords and biggest armour and defeat everyone. And it didn't hurt to be handsome either. 
Samuel asked Jesse to bring him each son in turn. So Jesse brought the oldest, tallest, strongest son. This must be the new king, Samuel thought. He looks like a king. But God didn't choose him. You're thinking about what he looks like on the outside, God told Samuel. But I am looking at his heart, what he's like on the inside. So Jesse showed Samuel his next oldest, tallest, strongest son. But God didn't choose him either. In fact, God didn't choose any of the seven sons. Samuel said, is that all? Jesse laughed. Oh well, there's the youngest one. But he's just the weakling of the family. He's only teeny. Bring him, said Samuel. Jesse's youngest son came running up and God spoke quietly to Samuel. This is the one. His name was David. He has a heart like mine, God said. It is full of love. He will help me with my secret rescue plan. And one of his children's children's children will be the king. And that king will rule the world forever. Samuel anointed David's head with oil, which was a special way to show that you are God's chosen king. You will be the new king one day, Samuel told him. And sure enough, when he grew up, David became king. God chose David to be king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. Once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem, you'll find the new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem, in the town of David, three wise men would find him.
Thanks, Heather and Amy. May God root those truths deep in young hearts and lives. We're now going to sing again. It's a beautiful song, The Lord's My Shepherd, and we're going to be accompanied by the gifted Crescent musicians. Uh, we're so thankful for the way God has used them to bless us during this period. going through the book of 1 Peter over the past weeks, and we've reached the end of the book. Reuben Johnson is going to bring us our final reading before David Farrell teaches us from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 12. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, 
because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who calls us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Good morning, and thank you for joining with us this morning at Crescent Church. And also thank you, Reuben, for reading the passage which we are going to consider this morning, the final chapter in our study of First Peter. And as Reuben read, we are considering this morning First Peter chapter 5. You may be aware, but this year we had planned to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Crescent Church. And as a part of that process, I was researching and looking through some old documents. And I came across a, a very extensive file on the church that it was then, meeting in Victoria Memorial Hall. And it gave a great detail of how the church coped with the Second World War. That file is actually a very interesting record of the social history of the period. What struck me as I read through that file was this, that as they were preparing for war and immediately after war started, nobody seemed to be taking the matter very seriously. Right through 1939, whenever they attempted to have training sessions within the church, when they asked people to come down to do patrol, even whenever they asked them to purchase and make sure they had the right equipment, people were very reluctant to participate. The bombing of Belfast seemed so remote, it seemed so far away, it seemed so unreal. And people were very lackadaisical and almost careless in their approach. However, Belfast was bombed. On that Easter Monday, whenever the bombs dropped down in Belfast, life changed dramatically for the people. All of a sudden, they were being attacked. All of a sudden, what had become been a threat had become reality. And as you read the minutes and read the record of how they coped subsequent to that attack, their attitude and behaviour completely changes. The protection of the city and the protection of the hall became paramount in their thinking. And why am I mentioning this event, which is over 70 years ago? And the reason I'm mentioning it is because the city was not prepared. The church was not prepared. And one of the reasons they were not prepared was because the leadership of the country, Northern Ireland at that time, and right filtering right down to the leadership within the communities and in the churches, did not perceive and understand the full threat of what was coming. The threat of what was coming. As Danny mentioned to us last week when he looked at his passage, he talked about the fact that this church was going to face persecution. Persecution would come in two forms for this church. There would be the physical attacks which Danny talked about last week. But also whenever we move into Second Peter, we read there that the persecution was internal. It became an issue within the church. 
And yet we find that Peter is trying to prepare them and get them ready for this attack, the attack which was inevitable and which was to come. And so he comes to the end of his book. He comes to the end of First Peter. And he brings together a number of things and a number of issues. And it's very difficult to understand on a cursory look as to why Peter brings about so many of these different issues in this last chapter. Yes, they do seem to be connected, but on the other hand, they seem to be also unconnected. So why has he brought these matters together? As I look through the chapter, one word struck me. And it's a word that Peter uses at the very start. He says, I am a witness. I am a witness. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. And the word that is used there by Peter as a witness is not just somebody who would stand up in a court and declare that they were a witness, but it's actually the word of an eyewitness. He saw what had happened. And when you reflect right back to the start of this book, you find the other bookend. You find those who have not seen, but yet have believed. Quoting from the Lord Jesus Christ from John chapter 20, having not seen, but yet believed. And Peter here is saying, I have seen. I am telling you what I have seen. And he's outlining in this chapter four, possibly five events from his life which are not explicitly referenced, but are talked about and alluded to within the passage. And so Peter isn't just pulling together a number of random thoughts in conclusion. He is actually underlying the fact that he was an eyewitness to these events. And while these people may not have seen the Lord Jesus Christ personally, they have believed, but he has seen him. And as a result of meeting him and as a result of seeing him, it has impacted upon his life. He also, as he addresses his church, doesn't use any of his apostolic titles. He could say the Apostle Peter. He could have used many references. He could have talked about many aspects of Peter. But he says a fellow elder. He's not there to lord over. He's not there to decide that he is in charge. He's saying, I am one with you. I am a fellow elder and a witness. And the first thing that he refers to is the witness of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing he alludes to in verse 2 is shepherd the flock, a conversation he had with the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing he alludes to is being clothed with all humility, the reference to the Lord Jesus Christ washing the disciples' feet. And the fourth one is resisting the attacks of Satan. But the first one, the very first one which he talks about, is a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. A partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter is taking them right back to the transfiguration scene on Matthew chapter 17. When Peter was allowed to see the transfigured Lord Jesus Christ, a partaker of the glory. He had seen the risen glory. He had seen the exalted glory. 
he had seen the transfigured Lord Jesus Christ. And although he didn't handle the situation very well, he was an eyewitness to that. And he then draws from that experience and he takes us forward and he takes us into another dimension, which will be revealed. And which will be revealed is reinforced whenever he speaks in verse number four, when the chief shepherd appears. The chief shepherd appears. You see, Peter is saying that this glory which the Lord Jesus Christ displayed at his transfiguration will be revealed, that we will see him. And so he commences by telling the people that there is a hope that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of the way the Lord Jesus Christ displayed his character in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of all that we have discussed previous, he is saying there is a future that Jesus Christ is coming back again, a glory to be revealed, a chief shepherd to appear. I've heard a number of people talking about whether or not this pandemic is one of the signs of the second coming of Christ. It's an interesting conversation. And many people on social media have engaged in debate and have talked about it in great detail. I'm not going to do that here. I don't want to do that here. I think if we do that, we move away from the purpose of the teaching of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the second coming and the teaching of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is, yes, it does give us signposts, but it's not for us to identify the date or the time. Only the Father knows that. But yet it is to tell us to live in the light of that hope of the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. I believe the events in our world are pointing that direction. I believe it could be imminent and it could be very soon. But what he, Peter is saying, living in the glory of that, living in the light of that, he reinforces this in his second book, that we are not just to anticipate, but we are to live in the glory and the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he moves along in verse number two to refer to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock, and he is addressing here overseers. And it's very interesting the word that he uses for overseer. It is literally one who oversees. But what we don't realize because of the text is that Peter is playing on another word which he has previously used. In chapter 4, in verse number 15, he refers to people being a busybody in other people's matters. A busybody. It's strange that Peter should use this term, because it's the only time it is ever used in the New Testament in the original language. And as a matter of fact, that people struggle to find a reference to it in any of the original language, in secular documents or the Bible. It is as if Peter has created a word for busybody, and he has combined two words to make the word busybody. And the second half of the word which he has used is exactly this word, overseer. An overseer. And whenever he is listing all of the things that we should not be in chapter 4, he says we should not be a busybody. And I think that there is a reference, a very subtle reference to the way in which some in that church were conducting themselves in the governance and the administration of that assembly. 
Were they busybodies? Was Peter addressing this problem whenever he used the word overseer? And he says to them that the overseers are to shepherd the flock of God. And this takes us right back to another witness, eyewitness account. Another event which Peter could not possibly have forgotten. That account which I spoke to you about a number of weeks ago, as Peter walked along the shore with the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ three times told Peter to feed, to tend his sheep, lambs and sheep. This is the event. And how do we know that Peter is referencing that event? Because the word that he uses, shepherd the flock of God, is the second verb that the Lord Jesus Christ used in that conversation. The Lord Jesus Christ told Peter three times, first to tend the lambs, then to shepherd the flock, and then to tend the sheep. And each time he does that, he used two different verbs. The first verb, to tend, was to care for, to look after, to pastorally help, to help the, the, the lamb, that little lamb, that soft, cuddly, very young, undefensible lamb to develop, tend it, pastorally look after it. And the second time he used the verb, the Lord Jesus Christ said, shepherd the sheep. And at that time he was telling Peter to, to guard the sheep, to protect the sheep, to take them to still waters, to take them to green pastures. And the third time the Lord Jesus Christ talks to Peter, he says again, to tend the sheep. And it's not just lambs which need to be tended, but it's those who are mature and adult in their Christian experience. And so Peter is being told here by the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out the work of an overseer. And the work of an overseer is all three of those things. It is to feed the flock of God with the word of God. It is to engage with them. It is to teach them. It is to apply the word of God in their lives. And secondly, it is to protect them. It is to protect that leadership. It is to put that wall around about them in a time of crisis to take them forward and to take them on to green pastures. And thirdly, and by implication, the third verb that the Lord Jesus uses is to pastorally care for the flock to look after them, to engage with them. And so what I think is Peter is addressing a problem in this church, a problem of governance, a problem of governance which was inappropriate. And he's reminding them from the very experience that he had with the Lord Jesus Christ about how we should care for the sheep. It is our responsibility as overseers, not just to govern, but to care to reach out, to pastorally care. My great-grandfather was a shepherd. He kept sheep on the hills of Lisburn. And he used to walk in among the sheep daily. And my father, during the Second World War, was sent out to live with my great-grandfather, his grandfather, during the Second World War. And he would have said that in the evenings, when my great-grandfather would have come in from the field and sat down at the heat of the peat fire, he said that he could smell the aroma of the sheep as his clothes dried out. That is what we as overseers are endeavouring to do, to be among the sheep, to be right there engaged with them, to feed, to guide, to protect, 
and to be an example. That is what Peter is saying. Don't lord over them. Be an example to the sheep. Our lifestyle, our behavior, the way in which we as leaders of the present church engage with you should be an example. We are not faultless. We are not placing ourselves upon a pedestal. We do not achieve and have not achieved some form of perfection. We will make mistakes. We will respond inappropriately. But as a leadership team, we are not only to lead, to guide, to feed, but we're to be an example. And Peter is admonishing these leaders of this early church who were behaving in an inappropriate way in their leadership style. He was commanding them not to be busybodies. Peter moves on and introduces another picture. It's recorded for us in verse number five. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be clothed with humility. Peter is taking us back to another scene, another event, another incident in the life of Christ and Peter. And he's taking us to that upper room. He's taking us to that room where the Lord Jesus Christ cast off his garments, took a basin and washed the disciples' feet and dried them with his towel. That is what he's referencing here whenever he says, be clothed with all humility. He's taking us back to that beautiful picture, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating humility. Sometimes we have a hard job defining the word humility. The trouble with humility is that once you try to define it, it can be misconstrued as pride. And so sometimes the easiest way to look at humility is to actually look at the opposite side, the negative side of humility. What is humility not? And the Lord Jesus, and Peter here says, God resists the proud. And so pride is very evidently one of the symptoms of the lack of humility. But he also references in Philippians chapter 2 what, what humility is. And he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. The opposite to humility, according to Philippians, is not just pride, but it's selfishness. It's wanting my way, and my way only. And you can see here in that context how we are to respond to each other. We are to consider the others, and we're to take the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ to consider others above ourselves. Humility has to be evident in all aspects of our Christian walk and never more so than in our relationships within the church. Clothe each other with humility. Humble yourselves, and he will exalt you in due time. 
humble yourselves, that God will exalt you. And Peter moves on to another picture. He talks in, in verse number 8 about be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. What is Peter referring to here? On two occasions, the Lord Jesus had to speak to Peter. On one occasion, Peter was actually contradicted the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ had to turn to Peter and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. He, Peter was almost articulating the very words that the Satan, the devil, had used in the temptation of Christ. The Lord Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And the second time, he talks about how Satan wants to sift. And while the implication is Peter, it's a, it's a plural term, the disciples like wheat. And so Peter is fully aware, and fully aware of the consequences of that statement as he went on to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's fully aware of the enemy. He's fully aware of the potential that is there. And so he tells us to be sober and to be vigilant because the adversary walks about like a roaring lion. Apparently, lions roar to scare people. Lions roar to determine their territory. Lions roar to say, I'm in charge here. And also lions roar after a kill has taken place, and it's almost like a victory shout. And so he's saying here that Satan is saying, I'm in control, I'm in charge, this is my domain. He's a roaring lion. But Peter said we can resist him, we can stand against him, and we are to resist him, and we are to stand against him, because the scripture says that which is within us is greater than that which is in the world. We can resist the devil. We can stand against him and all his wiles and all his schemes. Knowing your enemy is essential. Being aware of the power of your enemy is crucial. But giving too much credence to your enemy can also be fatal. Allowing him to give an impression that he is more than what he is can equally be dangerous. And so we've got to understand the limitations placed upon Satan by God as he deals with us in the church. But the reality is that we are to be sober, that we're to be vigilant, we're to stand there. Peter frequently uses this phrase, be sober and to be vigilant. And I think in here he is referring back to another scene. That night in which the Lord Jesus Christ asked him to stay awake. That night in the garden where he fell asleep. And he reminds himself, I fell asleep. I wasn't awake. And so we have these pictures. We have these pictures from the life of Peter. He talks about the fact that he saw the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the transfiguration. He saw what the Lord Jesus Christ in his risen glory would be like. He looked forward to appearance of the great shepherd. 
He also saw and recalled that event when he was commanded to look after and to shepherd the flock of God. He also went straight back to that event whenever the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself a basin and washed their disciples' feet. He also goes back to those events in his life when he had to be rebuked and he had to be reminded that he had to stay awake. All of these are here. All of these are incidents from the life of Peter. We as a church are facing a crucial time. We as a church are moving into a period that we have never had to move in before in our 150 year history. We haven't met together as a group of believers for three months now. And any other of you listening from outside the Crescent will have similar experiences. And as we go back into this new normality as it's referenced, we don't even know what it's going to be like. The journey is going to be hard. The journey is going to be difficult. Do not assume that it is an easy transition back to where we were. But Peter is encouraging through this chapter a group of people who need to be prepared, who need to be ready for what lies ahead. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness. There is hope. There is governance and leadership, which is vital and crucial. There is an attitude of humility, which is essential. Be aware of our enemy who seeks to disrupt and cause confusion and don't fall asleep on the job. We need to pull together over the incoming weeks and months as we restore the fellowship that we used to enjoy as a group of believers meeting in Crescent Church. In conclusion, cast all your cares upon him. Many of you will have that in sitting there as a, a, a picture on the wall of your house. And the picture is of a man who has an enormous burden, a huge burden, and that burden is removed and lifted by someone else. That is the exact picture that is here. The story is told of a young fellow in Ireland walking down a country lane with a massive burden of wood on his back. As he was heading home, a local farmer passed him, stopped his cart and said, Hop on, son, I'll give you a lift. The young fella accepted the lift. He jumped onto the back of the cart, and as the cart started to trundle down the, rail, the, the, the roadway, the farmer looked behind to see the young fella sitting there with the burden of wood upon his back. He said, son, why don't you just let the cart take the burden? You sit up. Ah, he says, mister, I don't want to be a burden to the horses. Yeah, I don't want to be a burden to the horses. There is one who is willing to take our burden if we are willing to cast our care upon him. As we conclude, Peter is preparing a church for a journey which lies ahead, a difficult journey. As a church, we are engaging and moving into a journey which lies ahead, a difficult journey. But we have that absolute assurance that we can take our cares, we can take our burdens, we can take our worries, individual and collectively, and take them into the presence of Almighty God, who will cast where we take our cast-off burden.
Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light, said the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we move into this period, let us depend upon him to take us forward. Thank you for joining us, and God's richest blessing upon you. Let's take time to close in prayer. And after we have closed in prayer, we will sing our closing hymn, By Faith. The words of By Faith, we read these words. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. By faith, we see the hand of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come into your presence. We thank you, our Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, for his death for us upon the cross. We thank you, our Father, for the hope that we have as we anticipate and look forward to his coming again. And our Father, as we go through these days of difficulty, as we look at a time which we've never seen the likes of before, we pray, our Father, for the leadership within our congregation. We pray for the leadership within churches across the nation as they grapple with the issues with which they have to deal with. And we pray, our Father, that you give them the capacity and the ability to not only to feed and to guide, but to protect the flock of God. We pray, our Father, that we may do it with the humility. The humility is displayed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And our Father, that we may be fully aware of the fact that there is an enemy seeking to devour and to destroy, that we be vigilant and that we be alert. But our Father, we thank you for the hope, the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our Father, as we walk through this period of time, we'd ask our Father that you go with us and before us, protect us and guide us, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Oh, oh, oh. 